here at Nordic True Crime. We are all for promoting the best of Scandinavian design and technology. And that is exactly what you get with Studio headphones. Studio headphones are not just a tech device, but also an accessory. With that sleek Swedish design, they are both fashionable and incorporate that high quality sound you're after. And for a limited period of time, you can get 15% off your first purchase of any of Studio's models by using the discount code NORDIC. That's N-O-R-D-I-C. Studio also offers free worldwide shipping on all purchases. So don't delay. Order your discounted headphones at studio.com today. That's S-U-D-I-O dot com. Two seemingly unconnected construction workers disappear 10 months apart. Disappearances are not that uncommon in Iceland with its rugged terrain and unpredictable weather. And if this had been an isolated incident, then the case would have probably run its course and it would have been forgotten about with time. However, the disappearance of both Gudmundur Einarsson and Geirfinnur Einarsson would become the most famous missing persons case in the history of the country. A problematic police investigation will lead to the convictions of six people. Six people who don't recall anything about the separate incidents on those two bitterly cold nights 44 years ago. This is Nordic True Crime. On a cold winter's night on the 26th of January 1974, Gudmundur Einarsson is walking the 10 kilometers home after partying at a dance hall in the picturesque harbour town of Hafnafjörður. It wasn't just a normal cold winter's evening. A storm had blown in from the Atlantic and the snow was falling thick and fast. Gudmundur chose to walk home, something that all youngsters have done at least once when intoxicated, regardless of the weather. On his way home, he is spotted twice. Firstly, by someone driving their car, who witnesses Gudmundur looking very unsteady on his feet, 
whilst being held up by another man, and secondly, by another motorist, who sees the now alone teenager almost falling in front of another car. This would be the last sighting of Gudmundur. For the next three or so weeks, the police search surrounding lava fields close to where he was last seen. The search is hampered by the really deep snow and is eventually called off. Fast forward to 10 months later. Iceland is once again under the shadows of that cold, unforgiving, harsh North Atlantic winter. A man by the name of Geifinur Einarsson from the town of Keflavik on the southwest coast of Iceland was at home with his family when he received a phone call. He then got up, got into his car and drove to a cafe by the harbour. He would never return. His car was found parked not far from the cafe with the keys still in the ignition. As they did with the disappearance of Gudmundur, the police scoured the nearby area and the coastline for any trace of the missing man. The police focused on the call that Geifinur had received before getting into his car and driving to the cafe. They searched far and wide, but have no luck in finding the mystery caller. The police were faced with the same scenario, no progression after months of investigating. They had nothing, no clues, no real witnesses, and of course, no bodies. By the summer of 1975, the case ground to a halt. Rumors spread like wildfire in every town, city and country in the world. Iceland is no different. Well, to an extent. With a population of just around 334,000, rumors tend to spread that bit faster. And it doesn't help that almost everyone knows each other in one way or another. Rumours were spreading around the pubs of his hometown about what could have happened to Geirfinnur and the police were well aware of these rumours for a specific reason. Just six years earlier, they had completely botched the investigation into the shooting of a taxi driver, a case which remains unsolved to this day. So the pressure was on. They had to get this one right. Both cases must be solved and they needed all the information they could get their hands on. As the rumours 
conspiracy theories and wild accusations spread from bar to bar. There was one in particular that the police paid close attention to. There was a man, a petty criminal, who some claimed knew something about the disappearance of Geirfinner. This man was Sevar Shishelsky. He was already known to the police as a small-time criminal, but he had never been in prison. Apart from the petty crimes he was involved in, he stood out for another reason. His surname and his appearance. That surname, Czeszelski, was Polish and very uncommon in Iceland. His appearance, long hair and girlish looks was in stark contrast to that of the locals. So the police believed that they had something, something worth investigating. Just two years or so after Gudmundur vanished, Sevar was arrested for a minor crime, along with his girlfriend, Erla Boladotir. They were both taken to the police station in order to be questioned about the offence they had been accused of. After a while, Erla admits to the accusation, but just before she is about to leave the room, the police produce a picture. A picture of a boy with long hair. That boy is Gudmundur Einarsson. Ella recognizes him instantly as someone she had seen some years earlier. She had briefly chatted with the boy at a disco and remembered being flattered as this particular boy was handsome. That disco was the same party that Gudmundur had been at that evening before he took that long walk home and was never seen again. It has never been established why the police were specifically asking Erla about that night, almost two years after it happened. However, she would mention something in the interview. Something that grabs the attention of the police, and they don't want to let it go. Erla recalls that that was the same night she had a strange nightmare. A nightmare in which she could hear Savar and some friends whispering outside her bedroom window. The police had nothing and they needed something quick. That something being a lead that would result in a conviction. So they jumped on Erla's words, believing that it just might not have been a dream. Maybe it was actually something she may have witnessed. It was at this moment the police decided 
that they would interrogate Ella. Aggressively interrogate her. It was the opinion of the police that Sabar must have something to do with the disappearance and they told Ella that they were going to help her recall everything and that she would not believe in until she told them what had happened that evening. She would stay overnight in a cold jail cell. The police had made all sorts of different claims, including one where they told Erla that they could hold her in solitary confinement for an indefinite amount of time due to the severity of the crime. Understandably, Erla's head was all over the place and there was no chance of her sleeping that evening. She questions everything. So much so that she starts to wonder if Savar and his friends did actually kill someone in the apartment and she just can't recall it for some reason. Sometimes the interrogations would last up to 10 hours at a time. When someone is interrogated for hours at a time, for days on end, it inevitably leads to a crossroad, a breaking point. Like any mother, Ella was desperate to see her child, and the police knew this. It was the ace up their sleeves. Finally, they gave her an out. They produced a typed statement which said that Ella had seen Sevar and his friends with the body of Gudmundur Einarsson wrapped in a sheet. Sign the statement and she is free to leave. And that is exactly what she does, thinking that nobody will believe it and it will be thrown out of court. A similar process develops with Sevar when he sees Ella's statement. He begins to think that he may know something about Gudmundur's disappearance. He discusses this with the detectives and in turn implicates his best friends. Christian Vidar Vidarsson, Tryggvi Runa Leifsson and Albert Klarn Skaftason will be the next three people to be arrested, the latter apprehended a few weeks later. Christian was a big, rough-looking guy, but had the reputation of a gentle and kind man who looked out for his friends. Trygvi was a big man, a man that was no stranger to physical altercations and someone who could get into bother after an evening drinking in the pub. Both Christian and Trygvi were known to the police. They had criminal records for offences such as burglary, possession of drugs and had even spent some time in prison. The interrogation process 
began again. The young men were kept in isolation and questioned time and time again for hours on end, lasting weeks. The threat of indefinite solitary confinement was once again used if the men refused to cooperate. Much like Erla and Sevar before them, the men eventually cave in. They admitted to killing Gudmundur, stating that it happened due to a disagreement over money. Albert was different to the other men. He had been arrested before, but it was only for the possession of cannabis. Albert really struggled with the forced isolation, and it didn't take long for him to crack under the intense pressure. However, he did not admit to carrying out the murder of Gudmundur. Instead, he admitted to taking the body and disposing of it in Iceland's vast lava fields. Now that the police believed that they had sold the first disappearance and were on the way to a murder charge, they wanted to connect the group to the unsolved case of Geifunur Einarsson. It was rumored that both Sevar and Geifunur were seen having words with each other, although there was no evidence that this happened. After having implicated her boyfriend, the police went back on their promise and told Erla that she was also a suspect. Initially, the police were aiming to use the same questioning techniques on her, which led to her original statement. But with Sevar having implicated his friends, it made it easier for the police. Well... Maybe not that easy. They did have their men, but they needed a story that all three would agree on. Over the course of 18 months, the men's stories would change again and again. When the case finally went to court, the men had finally settled on the one statement. They claimed that the murder happened on an area of land that contained rusty boats. Although not thought to be premeditated, the prosecutor claimed that they killed Geifunur among the boats and then hid the body in a fridge belonging to the grandmother of Christian before it was safe to remove the body. The three men then burned the body in a makeshift grave. Erla, who originally thought that she was safe, was in solitary confinement with the other men, suspected as an ancestry to murder. Christian and Sevar, who had admitted to the murder, were consistent in their statements that they had carried out the heinous act with an unnamed foreigner. They had now been isolated with only the detectives for company 
for over six months. Despite all this, no physical evidence had been found. This irritated many of the police officers. The frustration was palpable. No hard evidence existed. This led to a strange turn of events. In an unprecedented move, the Icelandic police brought in external help from Germany. A detective called Karl Schütz. A clear pattern of how the police worked was forming. They had no leads and no real evidence. So Schütz decided that his plan of action would be to find the unnamed foreigner. Along with 10 of the country's detectives, they scoured Iceland in search of this mystery man. Soon, they would come into contact with Gudjun Skarpendinsson. Gudjun didn't really have the same appearance as most men his age. He was 32, had long hair, and a very laid-back attitude to life. He did have connections to Sevar, having let him bring drugs into the country using his own car. But the thing that implicated him was his nickname, The Foreigner. However, Gudjung really wanted to help the police. He wanted to do anything he could to help solve the cases of the two men who had vanished without a trace. The only problem was that he couldn't recall what he was doing when the men disappeared, which was hardly unusual as it was not as if it happened yesterday. This didn't deter the celebrity German cop. He was certain that the five suspects he had in custody were guilty of murder. All that was remaining was a detailed step-by-step confession. To make sure that they were all found guilty and sent away for years, this confession was essential to his case. He started with Erla. She had admitted during intense interrogation that she maybe knew something about what happened to Geirfinnur. Schütz gave her the answer he needed, telling her that if she signed the prepared statement, then she would be free to go. It stated that Erla's car was used to transport Geirfinnur's body to the area of land where the rusty boats were kept, where she stood and watched his body being lowered into the shallow grave where it was subsequently burned. When this was put to Erla, she lost control and went into a fit of rage, so much so that she had to be restrained. When she finally calmed down, she was done. 
they had gotten to her once again after months and months of constant pressure. She simply couldn't take it anymore and was desperate to see her daughter who was growing up fast. She signed a confession and even told them how she disposed of the body. Confessions are one thing, but the lack of a body is another. Without a body, it was still going to be very difficult to prove in a court of law that they did in fact murder Gefinur. After all, if they were openly admitting to murdering him, then why couldn't they show the police where the corpse was disposed of? The police took the suspects to the lava fields on several occasions in order to try and locate the body. Astonishingly enough, this process would continue for over two years. Gyu Jun looked forward to the drives out to the fields. It was a welcome break from the continual stress of the interrogations and the mental pressure of isolation. He was really struggling with the constant stress and was given drugs by the prison doctor in order to help him sleep better. His confession would be the final one of the Reykjavik 6. Once again, it will be as straightforward as the police needed it to be. He was simply asked if he was in the yard of Keflavik that evening and he said yes. Gudjun's confession was secured. That is what Schütz and his team wanted. As before, there were no bodies, no physical evidence, but they had the confessions vital to their case, which were, of course, achieved through intense interrogation and the prepared and coerced statements. The long and drawn-out investigation was over. It was announced to the nation that Schütz and his team had found the killers of both Gudmundur and Geifinur. Even with the severe lack of physical evidence, Schütz would go on to say, quote, It is beyond a reasonable doubt as we criminal experts like to put it, that it's safe to say that it's an open and shut case. End quote. However, there was a young detective who in later years would speak about investigation team's frustration in the search for hard evidence. He would also feel the wrath of shoots just a few weeks previous to the press conference, in which he told the nation that they had sold the murders of both Gudmundur and Geifinur. Gisli Gudjonsson was the name of the young man who had now moved on from the police and was in the process of becoming a forensic psychologist. He was working on a research program, and as part of this 
carried out a lie detector test on Gudjon. The tests were completely confidential, and Schütz had no right to see Gisli's findings. But he was furious when he found out and demanded that everything must be handed over. This is where it gets even stranger. When Gudjon had received medicine from the prison doctor to help him cope with the stress of the isolation and interrogations, he soon confessed to the murders. But soon after the lie detector test, he began questioning everything. He didn't believe that he was involved in the murder at all. The same would happen with the remaining suspects. Confession after confession was retracted. The suspects all claimed that they confessed under extreme pressure from the police and that the statements which they made were false. These revelations would fall on deaf ears. The court was having none of it. And to the surprise of no one, neither were the investigators. It was now two long years since the first arrests were made. Two years of intense, solitary confinement. Two years of constant interrogations. Two years of prepared statements and coerced confessions. But finally, the court had come to its decision. Arla was sentenced to three years in prison. Gudjon was given 12 years for his part in the murders. Christian, Trygvi and Albert received sentences between 1 and 12 years. And the harshest sentence was saved for Sebar. The original suspect, the man whose name was mentioned in the various pubs in the weeks and months after the disappearances, he would receive life in prison. To most, it would seem strange as to why seemingly innocent people would admit to such terrible acts. But in truth, it is not all that simple. Gudjon, who kept a diary during his 14 months of solitary confinement, would, in 2014, look back at what he had written for the first time in almost 40 years. He even began the diary by stating that he has no idea what happened to these men and that he has no involvement in their cases whatsoever. But as he looks through the diary, even he would be shocked by the entries, saying that this can't be him writing, it must be someone else. The person writing these things is completely unrecognizable to him. 
the former police officer Gisli Gudjonsson went on to become a leading forensic psychologist in the field and is also an expert in false memory syndrome. False memory syndrome is a condition in which a person's identity and relationships are affected by memories that are factually incorrect but that they strongly believe to be true. Typically triggered by a severe traumatic experience, which is objectively false, but that the person believes actually occurred. Gisli read Gudjon's diary and believes it to be a prime example of the syndrome. He would say, quote, It tells you about memory distrust. It tells you how an intelligent individual, highly intelligent, educated person who knows he is innocent at the beginning, gradually began to think that he is wrong and that he had been involved in a murder of which he has absolutely no memory. End quote. One of the convicted six, Albert Skeftason, was sentenced to one year in prison and refused to speak to anyone after he was released. Anyone, apart from Gisli, that is. The reason for Albert's nervousness and fear of speaking to anyone became clear to Gisli. Quote, The sad thing is, after almost 40 years, Albert doesn't know what happened. He doesn't know whether he is guilty or innocent. Can you imagine? After 40 years, you're living in the dread that perhaps you were involved and you can't remember anything. End quote. Prime examples of false memory syndrome are seen under severe stressful situations, such as interrogations, false evidence, the planting of doubt, and of course, isolation. Exactly what the six suspects had endured. However, there is another revelation which goes a long way towards explaining why false confessions were made according to Gisli. During the investigation in 1976, photographs were taken. This may not sound unusual in the investigation of a murder. However, within this set of photographs, there are a handful of reconstruction shots. Again, this is not unusual but the person carrying out the reconstruction is one of the suspects, Christian Widerson. He is seen with a detective who is playing the part of Geifenur. This is seen as a very uncommon approach for the police to take, not only by using one of the suspects during the reconstruction, but using a suspect to show them how he killed the man a suspect who has no recollection of what occurred that evening.
Another prime example of planting that seed of doubt into an individual's head, making them believe that they may just have been involved. In the decades after the convictions, a committee was set up to investigate the case. In several countries in Europe in the 1970s, as well as Iceland, solitary confinement was seen as an acceptable method of dealing with prisoners, a suitable punishment that would force convicts to sit and think about what they had done. This was the equivalent of today's rehabilitation. As common as this may have been in Iceland in the 1970s, the findings of the committee were hard to believe. It was well known that each of the suspects had been subjected to periods of solitary confinement, but the extents to which they had suffered were unknown to the Icelandic people. The custody logs would reveal these extents. The isolation they endured was unthinkable. Erla, the mother of a young child, spent 105 days in isolation. Gudjung was in solitary confinement for 14 months, and Trigvi spent the longest time in isolation, an incredible 655 days. It wasn't just the isolation they had to deal with. Sevar's head was forced underwater at the threat of death in order to force a confession. Erla was interrogated over a hundred times, with her lawyer being present for just three of these interrogations. And of course, the mental torture of sleep deprivation was a particular favorite of the police. Other methods of control and torture used include the administration of drugs almost on a daily basis, as detailed in Trigvi's secret diaries. In the decades after his release, Trigvi had destroyed many of these diaries in an attempt to forget the past. However, his daughter had kept three of them, and they remained with her after her father's untimely death in 2009. It was only when a journalist knocked on her door a few years after her father's passing would they once again see the light of day. The journalist was looking into the case and asked her if she could help in any way. When it became apparent that she had some of her father's diaries, the journalist couldn't believe her luck. She wanted Gisli to see them. So with a little bit of trepidation, both the journalist and Trigri's daughter travelled with the priceless diaries to London to meet Gisli. After reading the diaries, he was lost for words. He believed 
that it was absolutely vital that a review into the case was carried out due to clear miscarriages of justice visible in Trigvi's journals. Gisli went public with his findings, even airing his opinions on TV. Almost immediately, the Icelandic government issued a statement that they would be forming a committee to review the case. The review would span 18 months and the findings would be damning. The review panel found that the confessions were completely false and therefore totally unreliable. It was clear to them that the confessions were forced by threat. The threat of indefinite solitary confinement. The Reykjavik Six confessed out of the fear of being isolated for the rest of their lives. As of February 2018, the state prosecutor requested that the Icelandic Supreme Court should acquit Sevar Christian, Trigvi, Albert, Gudjon and Erla. Four long years after the initial report was published. The lives of the Reykjavik Six since their imprisonment have been varied, filled with the understandably ups and downs and daily struggles. But to their credit, some of them have managed to raise families and move on, to an extent. On her release, Erla was reunited with her daughter, who she has remained in Iceland with to this day. Christian got married and had two daughters and very rarely speaks about the case. Trygvi had three children and, as we know, sadly passed away after developing cancer in 2009. Albert, who arguably had the toughest time, not knowing to this day if he actually did have anything to do with the case, settled down with his family he has never spoken to anyone about his experiences, besides Gisli. Gudjon settled in Denmark with his wife, before later returning to Iceland when he retired. Sevar, Iceland's most famous felon, the original and number one suspect in the police investigation, fought for years to have his convictions overturned. He did make some progression with his fight, and in 1997, it seemed like the High Court were ready to look at his case and give it the review it so badly deserved. However, this was not to be. They decided that they would not go ahead with the review. A devastating crushing blow for Sevar. The court was to claim that there was no new evidence 
so they would not be able to reopen the case. The irony was not lost on anyone. A case which had no evidence from the beginning couldn't be reopened due to the lack of new evidence. Everyone knew him, so in the end, Savar left Iceland and settled in Copenhagen, where he would live on the streets until his death due to an accidental head injury in 2011. He was 56 years old and would never live to see any kind of justice. British settlements on the shores of Virginia, to the treacherous swamps of Louisiana and the isolated mountains of Appalachia, the American South has a rich history filled with eerie legends and mysterious hauntings. Join me, Brandon Schecksnyder, as I journey into its underbelly, exploring these tales of loss and heartbreak, tortured souls and spirits of the past documenting ghost stories and legends amidst rich soundscapes and an eerie original soundtrack that can only be found on my podcast, Southern Gothic. Southern Gothic.